0: Me, people
1: own Welcome to Playing Footsie, the podcast where we talk about stocks, investing, and personal finance. Before we start, we want to make it clear that the information presented on this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. None of us is a financial advisor, and this is not financial advice. Investing in the stock market comes with risks, and we strongly encourage our listeners to do their own research and consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Now, let's dive into the world of finance and talk about what we're doing with our money.
0: The sucker's
1: going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. from the Playing Footsie Show, and I'm joined by Steve D. from the Playing Footsie Show. It's July the 8th, sort of about 20 to 10 in the morning. And we're here to talk about the stuff that's been happening in the stock market this week. The FTSE 100 has not had a very good week. I believe it's been down every single day this week for one reason or another. Interesting times for UK investors such as the one and only Steve D. How are you, Steve? How has your week been in the stock market? Is your portfolio been down every single day?
0: Not every single day, but almost all of them. I think I got maybe four or five of them down. Um, It's not bad. Yeah, Friday I had a decent day, um, (laughs) but it was kind of one of those things where American stocks were going down, uh, British stocks were going down, and then on the last day the pound strengthened as well, just to give you an extra kick in the sack. So uh, pretty pretty sort of average week, really. I, I still don't think there's any massive opportunities out there. There's nothing in my portfolio that's really screaming addition. In terms of... The things that I would normally have just plunked the money into, like your four terriers and your airtails, are actually really big positions for me now. So, uh, in terms of the UK, I've been trying to uh, look a little bit beyond that. My right move position's up about five and a half percent, so I'm like already thinking that's moved a long way since I started buying into that. So I started to look at um, Spirax Sarko at the um, on mm. Friday, and to encourage myself to do it properly this weekend, I have purchased a, a huge position in it, Steve, of one share. Uh, to try and encourage myself to get up, get on the hammock at some point, and uh, and 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 have a and have a good read up about it, and and try and get to the 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 bottom of uh, exactly what it does, and whether or not I actually think it's a it's a good opportunity. But it's fallen a long way year to date, so um, there's a there's there's definitely some potential there. But how about you, Steve? How was how was your week?
1: Interesting stuff. Sporak Sarko are a bunch of engineers. They're a UK stock that everyone thinks very highly of. The only thing I know about them, other than what I've given you kind of, there, is that they were mentioned in a note from UBS earlier this year as the better thing to buy than Helmer. I think they operate in similar ways. Helmer we've talked a little bit about on this show because I owned it for a while and, and would own it again if it was a bit cheaper. But both of those, I think, are kind of engineering style uh, conglomerates. And UBS were forecasting sort of headwinds for Halmer's growth and thinking that their inorganic growth was going to have to pick up quite a bit of the slack if they're going to make their targets and thinking Spirak Sarko was a better bet. Of course, UBS, well-known experts in all kinds of uh, financial matters. But uh, that is all I have on that subject. I think, like you, I probably achieved four down days out of five in a portfolio. I think my... My Monday was pretty good because some dividends came in. I'm never quite sure what to make of them for thinking about portfolio returns purposes. I mean, they are genuine returns. Uh, according to some people, they're the only genuine returns. And it's a perfectly legitimate strategy to invest with a view to getting dividends. So so they should kind of count. But they, they aren't a sign that my kind of portfolio went up or down. I kind of just got more money to put into the thing, which I which I have done. Apart from that, it's been pretty much all all down. I was looking just now, before the the start of the show, and thinking, oh, that's actually, down. that's actually down quite significantly, and I don't know why, because I'm looking at where the big mover is, and I'm not really seeing the big mover. I'm seeing down maybe half a percent, down 0.14 of a percent, and that's, okay, that's the wrong way, but it's not... It's not accounting for the stuff i'm seeing on my screen here and the answer is fx basically as you were, were saying here and i should probably be aware when there's a when there is a general shift downwards it's often the case for me that um the exchange rate is is blowing the opposite direction not the case in Forterra, of course which um is denominated in pounds and therefore shares just selling for less than they used to at the moment
0: yeah pretty much uh pretty much but the, like i said i mean there isn't still an awful lot of stuff that i would consider an absolute screaming buy so it's a strange period to be in at the moment where i just keep dropping money into um basically a money market fund which is probably only going to return three and a half to four percent a year when you know we're, we're striving for something better than that but uh, I'm just biding my time, Steve. It's one of the things that the the more and more investing you do, and the more sort of like being on a podcast and drawing attention to thinking about investing is. I think I feel like I'm starting to get a lot more patient, so uh, and and waiting for the opportunities a little bit more. So you and think eventually,
1: think, go just on. we get into kind of attrition on this, and think, well, I've looked at every damn stock. I know what these things do. I've got a basis of these things. That's basically what it was at the time that I looked at it before. Okay, it's up or down a couple of percent or something. I mean, why am I supposed to get excited about this? I'm going to sit and wait now because there isn't anything anymore to do. Bad news for this show.
0: It is annoying, though, when people say, like, have you heard of and you think, How am I going to have heard of this? It's like millions of stocks out there. And they say, it, say it, and then you're, oh, you mean the Bitcoin mining company? <laughs> you're like, oh, my God, I've looked at <laughs> far too many stocks. I've got some kind of weird encyclopedic knowledge of I know a little bit about a lot of companies, but I don't know, Steve. It is difficult sometimes because you get a, sometimes in investing. I think you get a false sense of confidence when you've you've been doing it a, a fair amount of time. You you feel like you know enough already, and you know with Spirit Saker, I was like, yeah, yeah, I know, it, I know it makes like uh, industrial steam systems and things like that. And then I sort of sat down on uh, last night. and was thinking, what's an industrial steam system? <laughs> I have absolutely <laughs> no idea what one of them. What would I even use it for? But, uh, so that's what basically my weekend's going to be Steve uh, we've got some new garden furniture we bought it from Costco we had to buy a Costco membership as well to get it um, so we've got some fancy garden furniture out there in the uh, in the garden at the moment and I intend to plonk myself on it in about two and a half hours time and try and find somebody who will tell me in great detail what Spirak Sarko does and then I will uh, get down to the nitty gritty
1: Okay, and in the remaining two and a half hours, we will fill that in with financial information from this shut. No, um, we will fill in the next sort of fifty minutes or so with about that, I guess. But how's your week been apart from the market, Steve? Uh,
0: well, it's really slow at work, Steve. So we've been hearing rumours out of the rumour mill that the major house um, house builder that sounds like a fruit. Um, they have. Uh, they're. they're completions are down about 40% Steve and I would say at the moment we're somewhere near that figure as well in terms of in terms of our sales so uh, we've got three branches uh, in our group Uh, one of them is doing okay uh one of them is doing badly that's probably us and uh the the most southern branch is going on like nothing has uh, changed or happened which is <laughs> exactly how the, the the they tend to tend to operate but yeah we we're hearing some pretty nasty things out for for sort of northern domestic housebuilders they're all down a little bit uh and and we're definitely experiencing that but steve have you watched the cricket I haven't watched
1: much. I've been following a a fair bit. Those are some people who feel like they're in a hurry. Glenn McGrath, before the start of the series, at the risk of him being right about stuff, predicted five very close test matches with Australia to win all of them. Uh, And so far, it's arguably bang on uh, with the first two. You would say they were both pretty close. You would say they were... uh, Clearly, they were won by Australia. But in each case, you would say, kind of till very near the end there was a chance England were going to do it. They were second favourite in the last test for for a good bit towards the end, but they were still well in there, uh, and you wondered whether it was going to happen. No one thought that was done until the final uh, wicket in that particular case. But yeah, I I'm not feeling good about the rest of this series, to be honest, Steve. I think England have a... The way I see this, they're kind of battling fairly valiantly, to be honest, against what is clearly a better team uh, than them. And they're not good enough to beat them. And Australia, I think, have figured out the way to play against England's system at the moment, which is to hang in there and hang in there and hang in there. You will be on the ropes as people are hitting hard, but don't let yourself get knocked out. Stay in the game. And the longer you can stretch this out, the, the stronger player, stronger team will prevail in the end.
0: Well, the the problem I think we've got at the moment is that Australia are a team, and we're a set of individual people who occasionally sort of exert individual brilliance. So, uh, in the first test, it was it was Root essentially who uh, who did a lot of it. In the second, it was Stokes, and in the third, it has been Stokes so far. Uh, essentially, I feel that when when Root's out, we're in serious, serious trouble because, I mean, you look down that list and I know you're not supposed to just go off averages, Steve, but you look down that list of averages and everybody who comes in has got an average in the 30s and that's not enough in test cricket, I don't think. Um, I mean, even Stokes doesn't have a... I don't think he he might be creeping in the 40s now, but he's probably late 30s. But at times in these last two tests, when Root has failed, it has felt like Australia versus Stokes, and to be fair to Stokes, batting on like one leg, and I think he he's pulled his he, he pulled a muscle in his ass yesterday. They said on the radio as well. <laughs> he's doing pretty well. He's doing he's doing pretty well, and he, he I mean he is exciting to watch. But I just think ah, oh, crazy. But what I did enjoy. Being used used to being a fast bowler myself was seeing the return of Mark Wood and he was pretty revved up. Uh, uh on the first day bowling, uh, one ball at ninety six and a half mile per hour they said, which is. The fastest that I I think um, a UK ball has ever bowled. That's faster than Joff receiver we were calling for last week.
1: Yeah, I was. um, You said it's been a a tale of sort of individual stories for England. That's probably true. I agree with you. The first one was Root, the second one was Stokes. You said this one also Stokes, I would say, kind of assisted fairly heavily by Mark Wood uh, in this one, who's done a strong job with the ball partly knocking over stumps and partly causing wickets to fall at the other end. It's. It's a tough one at the moment for England I mean Stokes I think I'm not surprised his average isn't that high I think he came into this test needing a score he has more than a lot of people he has a catalog of individual highlight reels that a lot of that would be the envy of a lot of probably better uh, batters and cricketers than him or people with higher averages than him he has a lot of failures uh, as well along the way but he does have it in him to you know reach down and find a big, well headingly of the last uh home ashes series batting with leech um to an extent last time to an extent this time as well so i'm not hugely um surprised by that my week's been uh it's been interesting actually, I've been off running some stuff for uh, the other company that I work for that's not my main employer, where we look at some stuff to do with the ethics of business. So combining my two loves of podcasting about publicly traded companies and philosophy, that was that was a fun and interesting thing to do.
0: Sounds good. So just just quickly Steve, before we shuffle mm-hmm. on, yeah. I think I'd be happy with just winning one game out of these, I think I'd consider that a minor victory, losing 4-1 or maybe 3-1 in somewhere in. <laughs> 4-1 is,
1: uh, I feel like, I think 4-1 would probably be about fair, based on the way things have gone so far, so I guess I'd take it. Um, it's a strange one with that, in that if you think about the kind of McGraw result, 5-0 would flatter either team, I think. Either side has done enough to deserve something from this series. England probably second best, 3-2-4-1, something like that, um, maybe 3-1 and a... It's hard to see anything getting rained off with the speed that the matches are going, isn't it? Mm. I mean, even if, you, even if you lost a day, you'd still complete it in the remaining four sort of fairly comfortably, it seems.
0: Yeah, definitely. We're on the third day now, and, and Australia are halfway through their second innings. There's only one to go, so we could be done tomorrow um, mm. pretty comfortably.
1: Quick game's a good game, uh, and the same goes for this show. So let's crack on with some stuff about markets and finance and stocks and... And that kind of thing. So we were expecting Paul uh, this week because we are basically triumphs of hope over expectation. Uh, Although I don't know if it counts as a hope anymore. Um, We basically failed to reason inductively, but we thought he was going to be here and he is in fact not. He's uh, not got power this time or not got internet or something of that sort, which he told us through the internet. But I was going to ask him a question, which I think I know the answer to, but I was reflecting on this week. Interest rates in the UK are the thing everyone's talking about. They're largely talking about it in the context of mortgages. I wasn't going to ask him a mortgage question. I know he's an expert on those. But uh, they're currently at 5% or so uh, Bank of England base rate. And they're forecast to go higher. They're forecast to go through 6% next year and peak at around six and a quarter or maybe just under. And I say they are forecast. I'm looking at the JP Morgan Guide to Markets here, which is, it might be right. It might not be right. It probably won't be 100% accurate, but it's the best thing I can think of. And uh, if anyone's wondering what source I'm using there when I say their forecast, it's that uh, for all of this. The FTSE 100 has been down every day this week, and it now has a dividend yield, at least on average anyway, of just under 4%. So I was sort of wondering to myself, with the first direct account that you mentioned, Steve, a few times on this show at around 7%, there are some other things as well, offering 6% for a one-year fix, 6.1% for a two-year fix and the like. Why is anyone investing in dividend stocks at today's prices? If you think the average yield is 4.5%, anything higher than that, you're probably looking at above average risk. Anything below that, you're probably looking at below average return. And bearing in mind, we are in the equities sector anyway. So we are always inherently, and I don't really care if it's a really, really good, robust company... Somewhat more risky than stocks in terms of nominal return. Stocks, uh, sorry, more risky than cash, rather. Stocks can go down. The face value of cash doesn't go down. There is a chance that your bank entirely busts, but you're probably insured uh, in this country anyway. So... I was wondering to myself, what do you think about this? Steve, I was going to ask Paul, see if he knew the answer. Uh, but why the hell is anyone being a dividend investor at, say, 4.5% on average, when they could be a cash investor at 7% on average?
0: It's pretty tricky, isn't it? Because both of these things, uh, in terms of interest rates and a dividend, are drains on uh, on most company incomes. Uh, anyone with debt um, becomes you know, becomes foiled to it twice. But, um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I, you know you know, I like to scour around the Trading 212 communities and answer queries and what have you, and a lot of people I'm seeing have been pushed into the higher dividend yield style companies. So mm. you see a lot of people saying, well, what do you think about this pie? It's got, a, it's got a dividend yield of 8%. And, like, straight away in my head, I just think, oh, my God, that's, that <laughs> that's going to be atrocious. And you look down the list of companies, and they're the worst of the worst kind of BDCs, uh, in, you know, investing in all the kind of companies that banks won't invest in uh taking you know taking huge bonds off these kind of companies or what have you and you think to yourself these were these were companies for when the economy was uh, uh when when interest rates were pretty much nothing they're not they're not companies you know for this kind of uh, interest rate so yeah terrifies me steve but you've got to remember that the the british market has a pretty good yield on it at the moment just just to, if you were to just buy a FTSE uh, 100 etf i think that's in the fours isn't it or or maybe getting towards five
1: I thought it was a fraction under four at the moment on average. But um, yeah, so the British market is okay. It's still a way short of, of seven. And of course, I mean, one answer you might... I can think of three answers, right? So one I think is bad. One is uh, maybe okay, but not entirely convincing to me, and one that I think is better. So the one that I think is bad, and I think there is a category of investor out here that would give this as an answer, would just be, I think, four and a half, or let's say it's a a 4% dividend yield for the moment. I think it's slightly under that, but let's say 4%. Four is higher than seven, uh, and then since four is a bigger number than seven, you'll get a bigger result by investing in the four thing rather than the seven thing. Now, that isn't strictly right because seven is, in fact, a bigger number uh, than four. But there are people who I've seen confuse these things around and suggest that, look, if you buy the thing with the the lower number return, you, in fact, get a bigger return than if you buy the thing with the higher number uh, return. We won't worry too much about that because I think, Steve, most of our viewers are are probably okay with the idea that numbers go in a sort of certain order and the higher Mm. ones tend to correspond to sort of bigger returns. Of course, there's always risk with all these things. And you should think about those risks carefully, but just taken at face value Seven tends to be a larger number than four, according to most people. I think we're all happy on that thought, Steve. I
0: think so, yeah. I think, I mean, there are 70 ways to explain it to somebody and uh, mm. that, that, that seven is a bigger number than four. But that was very, uh, that, that's, that has still proved very difficult to get across to some people.
1: Yes, that was a, a source of confusion earlier this week. Um, but hopefully, hopefully, I think most of our viewers are okay with the idea that the number seven comes after the number four if you count upwards. Um, So let's not go with that idea for the moment. Here is an idea that you might get from Paul uh, as an investor. Um, Dividends can go up. um, And dividends, he's a dividend growth investor, whatever that means. But his idea, I think, is that he plans to get more in the way of dividends over time. And I don't mean in that you can reinvest your dividends because you can reinvest your interest too. So that point is... Is kind of lost a little bit but let's say uh, dividends can grow because i don't know say unilever or something which i think pays an about about FTSE 100 average uh dividend yield so i think that's on the mark that's been growing its dividend at uh about five percent per year for the last decade or so so if you just sat there with your unilever shares you would get a certain amount in one year and you'd get an extra five percent the next year and an extra five percent again the next year and an extra five percent again the next year and we grow and you grow and you grow and you grow like this it does take quite a while, though, uh, and longer than you might think for sort of 3.75 or 4 or so to catch up to uh, 7 on this point. And if you do reinvest, it takes even longer because the 7 compounder is compounding much faster than the 3 and a bit uh, compounder. So I'm not convinced by that answer, but it is, I, I will give you, strictly possible for dividends to go up. Um, sound about right to you, Steve? Sound like a poll type response?
0: Yeah, it does, it does, Steve, but the, the, the problem you have with these kind of companies as well is that, it, like I always say to everybody, the only thing that matters is total return. So forget about a dividend yield, That the only thing that matters is, is complete total return. So take, for instance, the FTSE 100, Steve, which we'll just take for now as having a, a just less than 4% dividend yield, because we, we both agree that that's probably the case. It's down 4% this year, Steve, so in terms of uh, where you are, even, uh, even though we're only six months in, you're actually down two percent because you've only had about two percent of that yield so far we're down four percent that's no good Uh, it's no good to anybody i I get the argument of income later in lives but a lot of the people who um watch this show you see commenting on things are not later in life at the moment so focus on total return What what you're after is dividend yield and capital appreciation uh somewhere on that kind of level to get you to a level that beats the uh the S&P 500 or something like that, which uh, at the moment is, what, 16%, 17% up, Steve, at this, this time of the year? so oh, something like that. Yeah, so the FTSE is only 21% <clears throat> behind at the moment.
1: Yeah, the FTSE is down. As a result of its declining this year, the FTSE 100 is now down for the year. Uh, it's gone below its levels since the start, and it's gone below its lowest levels, which were back in March, I think, before uh, this. So we're now at the low point of the year for the FTSE 100. I mean, that, in many ways, that makes it a nicer place to go looking. Uh, You might think you want to buy these things when they're cheap rather than when they're expensive. I was talking to your point about reinvesting and looking for uh, capital appreciation or basically businesses that are going to grow and chuck off more cash. I was chatting to someone the other day on the subject of British American Tobacco, and he's a shareholder, and I thought we had... I'm not, um, and I'm not considering buying it. And I, but I thought we had a pretty sensible kind of conversation. He at least talks a language that I understand here. And his idea was, look, you get a massive yield. I think, he says... Uh, this thing has long enough, and he's not reinvesting his dividends, that it will chuck out enough cash to be worth the cash he put in today before it expires. So he thinks that just based on that dividend, suppose the share price goes to zero, how much cash am I going to get out of this before it does, before the entire company winds up? Is it going to be enough to be worth buying it today? His answer is yes. My answer is probably no, but I can I can respect that as a way of thinking. I happen to disagree with it, uh, but to me that, that makes sense as a a perfectly kind of coherent thought of I'm just going to do it on dividends and in my view, I'm going to get enough out of it. Okay, there's a question of whether that view is correct, but it does at least make, make investing sense, uh, to my mind, Steve.
0: Yeah, modern cigar, but investing mm-hmm. that, isn't it, in, in, in a way. It's the way that you're getting cash out of the business on a gradual scale rather than... Uh, rather than- You know, at the end, when everybody, um, when everybody has a big liquidation, and you you get it that way. So yeah, that's the, the, I guess that's the modern version. But I would imagine that that's not going to happen because as the share price starts to, starts to dwindle and business has evidently dwindled with it, you would assume that they stop being able to pay their debts, and about halfway through it, you get collapsed out.
1: Yeah, I, I'm also doubtful that's going to happen, but I can at least see it is a coherent, internally coherent investing thesis, albeit one I disagree with. So here's the last reason, I think, for buying dividend stocks now at, let's say, three and a high number, three and a high point percent, when you can stick it in cash for a year at seven or six percent. And here is the reason, I think cash ain't hanging around at those levels. Um, I was looking at the guide to the markets, and okay, so you can have a year at seven percent. But then you'll have your cash, and you'll have seven percent more cash. And the question becomes, what the hell are you going to do with it? Uh, and you might be right next year because interest rates are forecast to top out at sort of six and a bit, uh, six and a bit percent. I was going to say, so it might well work for another year. But after that, the forecast for interest rates ain't so good. They're forecast to go down pretty much as quickly as they came up, according to the guides to the markets, guys. And they're um, scheduled to uh, by 2028, so about five years from now be somewhere just under 4% uh, with interest rates. So you're going to be... I don't think you're going to be getting 7% on a one-year fix if interest rates are below 4%. they are currently at 5 and the best you can find is 7% somewhere. Uh, I don't see that happening in 2028. So here is the reason I think I would have for buying dividend stocks if I was a dividend investor. Dividend payments and the amount you get in dividend payments don't massively care about interest rates. Interest rates... Uh, create headwinds for businesses and they might affect yields in certain ways but Unilever will make as much money as it makes probably regardless of where interest rates are it finds a way to make a little bit more each year a little bit more each year a little bit more each year and I think that I don't see rising interest rates as a major headwind to that so I think what you the person who buys dividend stocks today is going to think is well, look, in in five years' time, interest rates will be down. I won't be able to reinvest anything at 6%. Um, I will still have my nice... uh, By that point, I'll have reached 5%, perhaps, um, with my reinvesting and uh, dividend going up approach. And when I think sort of longer term, I think I'm going to be okay here because I think cash is... I wonder whether there's a bit of a cash trap uh, here. If you look at the bond market, uh, to try and back this up a little bit, Steve, I was looking at the yield on UK gilts. Currently, you can have a one-year gilt with a 5.4% return, two-year is 5.36, three-year is 5.17. I'll skip a few years as we go, but five years is 4.84. Ten years is 4.64, and 30 years is 4.67. Generally speaking, we are coming down. We are in inverted bond yield territory. People are thinking that in three years, five years, 10 years, you're not going to see the same opportunities in cash as you are now. Are the opportunities going to be any better in dividend stocks? Maybe, but if you buy them now, then you can be ready for that to happen. I think that 's probably the best reason to be a dividend investor at least that I can think of in this particular environment. What do you think
0: well, I mean the bond yield is is uninteresting to me because you can get better better rates than that in the savings accounts so i don 't see mm-hmm. why you would want to why you would want to go down that road at the moment it 's five point seven six on a five year fix. Uh, f- uh, with it, with just a standard bank account, so buying bonds is as equally as unattractive as. Um, but they, but like I say, they are a good predictor of future interest rates. So mm-hmm. uh, potentially that is uh, the evidence you need. That we're probably going to head down that way. But just having a quick look at you know friend of the show legal in general. Um, <laughs> Uh, just this, their five year share price, Steve, they're down 20, well, 17, uh, 17 and a quarter percent in the last five years with an, about an 8.8% dividend yield. So you probably would have, you know, you would have made out, made out of that fairly comfortably with your dividend yield and like I say, reinvesting it into a falling share price. If you think that at some point this company turns around and becomes, uh, you know, becomes green again for you, That, that could be quite attractive, Steve, um, Insurance companies taking a bit of a hit because, you know, they're quite interest rate sensitive. Uh, the legal general, again, is involved in a lot of houses as well and things like that. So uh, they've got a uh, probably a lot of problems. They're, well, they're in, they're in pension risk transfer as well, of <laughs> which with the bond crisis we had. Do you remember that early in the year? Mm. Or was it early in the year? Yep. Uh, uh, Trebly exposed to things that people don't like at the moment, Steve, but... There are companies out there that I think people probably should be taking a look at that have a decent yield. I'm just not sure I always see they're the ones that people go for.
1: Yeah, Legal in General is interesting. I've sold my investment in, in Legal in & General a little while ago now, and I sold it for sort of two main reasons. One is that I struggled to work out exactly what this company is and what it does. Um, and the other is that even if I could work out what this company is and what it does, I worry a bit about life insurance as a as sector. It's really hard to know because your, pre- your uh, policies run basically kind of indefinitely and your losses on these things are potentially indefinite. And you only really know with any insurance policy um, whether you wrote it at the right level once the policy has expired. And in the case of a car insurance thing, that's not too bad. You find out in a year basically as did 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 you have to pay out more on it than you took in? Yes, no. There's your answer. Uh congratulations we made money on that one. We lost money on that one. Life insurance stuff runs and runs and runs and runs and and then runs in some cases and you can really get into kind of massive mounting losses and they're not helped by things like inflation, increased costs and as you pointed out, Steve Um, potentially the value of their bonds landing themselves in trouble you can't have a run on an insurer at least not deliberately like you can have a run on a bank you can have a policy that needs to uh, claim at any given moment but people can't all just suddenly get scared and be like right I'm yanking my money uh, the way they can out of Lloyd's or something but um, that's yeah, that's kind of why I'm not in legal in general, but they do have a big old yield and uh it's higher than their bond yield, which is what you would expect given the additional risk of equity and so on.
0: Hmm. Would it would it be something that you'd be interested in getting into at any kind of price around DST? I'm looking at it now, it's two it's two twenty. I reckon uh when we were buying it it was under two. Uh I wonder if it gets there again.
1: I I have an alert set for under two, by the way, mostly just so I can tell you about it, but um Uh, possibly Uh, I, I definitely wouldn't say never to this but I need to find I haven't yet found the thing that really makes it click for me what legal in general does where I think I could then comfortably come on this show and say look here's what this company does here's why the outlook for it is either either good or just not as bad as currently being priced in and here's how I plan to make money out of this thing I keep hearing things that I sort of understand what the words mean, but I don't think I could do anything other than repeat the words back. So people talk about it being a really well-run business. I know what really well-run means. I know what business means, but... I often think that's the thing that people say when they don't really know what they're talking about, but they start saying they want something positive to say. So they say, yeah, it's really well run without saying anything about what they mean by that.
0: I suppose as well, the problem with saying it's a really well run business is that the CEO is leaving. Uh, So that, uh, that makes it a little bit different.
1: Man with the most British name ever uh, for uh, a CEO. Nigel Wilson, right, is uh, stepping down. uh, Interesting CEO fact for you, actually. Rolls Royce's new CEO, whose name I can't possibly pronounce, um, he's replaced a guy called Warren East, whose name I can pronounce. Do you know where Warren East was CEO beforehand, Steve? Legal in general? No, no, worth a try. It's worth uh, a guess. You, yeah, it's kind of the opposite of legal in general. Uh, but things still in the UK. What would you say the most opposite business of legal in general in the UK is? I'll give you a clue: listed or unlisted.
0: Uh, well, go on. Surprise arm me. holdings. Oh, really? Yeah, I
1: did see. Um, <laughs> uh, it's quite the change from arm holdings to like Rolls Royce, isn't it? But. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Warren East was formerly in charge at Arm, uh, which is then sold to SoftBank and is now coming potentially back onto the markets again, but not in this country, because why would you put it here?
0: I feel like that's ringing a bell now. I feel like that that name is in Chippewa somewhere, so maybe I've just skipped over that detail.
1: Yeah, maybe you thought it was a different Warren East. I wouldn't blame you, to be honest, hmm. but um, anyway, enough on uh, this nonsense. Let's talk about some stocks. Steve, what have you been looking at in the stocks
0: division? I've been looking at Wise, Steve. Um, Mm. They're a pretty interesting company. They were launched onto the stock market, I think, last year uh, at some point. But it feels like it's been a long year, Steve. It could have been a few months ago. Just a year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, I'll give you a little bit of background information on them. So Wise um, listed on the FTSE. Uh, They used to be called TransferWise. It's now uh, WISE is the ticker. They're a fintech essentially founded by two Estonian businessmen. Uh, Nope, I'm not going to have a go at pronouncing either of those names. Um, I think I will just skip over that. But yeah, shout out to Estonia. I've got an Estonian friend. I went to to uni with an Estonian friend. So that's three I uh, now know the names of. You sound like someone who's trying to claim they're not racist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was awful. I might just cut that bit out. Um, But yeah, Steve, um, So this was uh, a week, I think the results came out a week on Tuesday uh, ago, uh, and we wanted to cover them last week, but we ran out of time. Uh, But shares jumped about 21% on the LSE on the morning after uh, they announced a a pretty substantial increase in pre-tax profit. So, Sorry, just to hark back, what WISE does is essentially they're like Western Union, but free. Or very, very cheap. Um, And there is no reason whatsoever to use Western Union over them. From what I can see, Uh, Wise seems to be a wholly better product. Um, But anyway, Steve. So in the year uh, up to March 31st, uh, 2023, Wise reported revenue of $846.1 which is about a billion USD at the time. Uh, That's up 51%. Pre-tax profit jumped 234% to 146.5 million. Can you guess why that is, Steve? Uh,
1: is it to do with um, exchange rates? It's to do with interest
0: rates, I would assume. I reckon uh, that's all yeah. interest rates. Oh, of course rate it is.
1: It's to do with yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yep. So customer number Steve increased 34% to 10 million. Uh, that was about a 37% year-on-year rise in volumes as well to 104.5 million. And uh, the payments technology group predicted further growth in the upcoming final year. They said uh, we expect income to grow between uh, 28 and 33 percent in full year 2024 and for income to grow by more than 20 percent KGA over the medium term, whatever that means. Uh, we continue to expect our adjusted EBITDA margin to be above 20% for the uh, medium term, but for it, for it to remain higher than our target in 2024 due to a higher proportion of interest. And that's essentially how WISE is this making its money at the moment. It's not a bank. It operates on a kind of e-money license at the moment, and uh, that allows them to have a little bit more flexibility about what they do with your cash. So they're not investing it, but they will Deposit it somewhere else because they're not allowed to hold it uh, because of the, the terms of their license. So they'll be probably getting about 5% of that, probably depositing it with the Bank of England, taking a 5% rate out of that, passing about 4.2% of it back onto the customers at the moment, and the other 0.8%, Steve, they just take us take us profit and when interest rates are as high as this and you can scoop a little bit off the top uh this is where wise is making all of its money at the moment i think it's a pretty exciting looking technology business we actually have a fintech on uh on the lse that i think is a pretty good looking business uh there's a very good business breakdowns on it as well which uh, we will we, we would direct you to if you want to learn more about the business steve but I think it looks pretty good it's in the capital incinerator steve and that feels like that might have been the wrong decision because it's certainly not incinerating cash at the moment no it's not incinerating cash yeah wise is this a really interesting
1: uh business there's a couple of bits that stand out to me so they have a really nice model which uh, when i heard about how their company works it's one of those things where i thought that sounds kind of good also kind of obvious why isn't anyone doing this already which to me makes kind of a lot of so their idea is that it costs money to send uh, money across borders and it's, well, it does two, two things happen. It's slow and it's expensive, basically, is the, the way you traditionally send money across borders. Their idea is that you kind of send money across borders without really moving any money across any borders. So if I want to send some money to my friend in Osto- Estonia, what I will do is put my money into the in this country into the wise uh account they have over here and my friend in estonia is then allowed to take money out of the wise account they have over there the the physical money doesn't move as it were the uk money always stays uk-sided the estonia money always stays estonia-sided but wise has taken it from me and and paid out to to them uh it's that's a really really neat way of going about things as far as i can tell i mean it feels like you need a sort of biggish infrastructure i was listening to I think some of the AJ Bell or Shares Magazine uh, guys talking about this. And if you want to hear old people not getting a fintech company, uh, and that's fine, right? I mean, there's plenty of stuff I don't get, arguably this included. But if you want to hear um, people uh, not getting something, uh, have a good listen to that if you can. But they put up some great results because of, as you point out, net interest income, which uh, I did know about on this. I call it net interest income. I don't think they do loans. But the idea that they just kind of make... um, income based on if you have this kind of approach you have to have a lot of money sat in accounts somewhere and that money is an asset that you can earn interest on and when interest rates are higher uh, you can earn more money on it so this has been kind of sneak valuable um, to them and that's that's good to know I think I would keep an eye on where interest rates go here and what they're planning on kind of doing with that cash because it feels like in much the same way as a bank might be sensitive to interest rates, um, they are too. They um, they're not a bank, as you point out, and therefore not susceptible to bank regulation, which is kind of helpful if you're if you're wise in this situation. One of the things I got from the business breakdowns thing, which I really really like, is that they um, basically can white label their products for things like Monzo and the like. So Monzo is really good as a overseas exchange uh, money spending abroad service. Um, that's not a sentence, but there we are. Um, and the idea that they're basically doing that with their front end and Wise's back end and wise can just make some money on the side of, of that seems like a very nice kind of uh, add-on to me here. And it feels like feels like a real headwind for kind of, I guess, what we might call legacy operations in the the money abroad market
0: yeah, and there's some kind of flywheel there in the business you would assume as well steve in that they can they've got low overheads and because they're not a bank uh they can afford to pay out the nearly just under a market leading uh rate on on, on the money so it actually encourages people to just leave the money in wise and not take it out so when that happens Uh, they can just keep depositing that into the uh, bank of england taking five giving you 4.25 back or whatever their rate is at the moment and keeping that 0.75 there's no incentive for people to actually take the money out of wise that they've received and uh, and and put it anywhere else so it it is a very attractive looking business while the rates remain as high and if we believe that rates are going to decrease but maybe not decrease all of the way then wise might have some legs here steve because you would assume that I mean, outside of your chips and people like that and your building societies who are going to come along and offer, you know, small amounts of cash, uh, small amounts of, you know, maybe bank accounts where they're taking 10, 15 million of deposits and then think, oh, we don't want to, we don't want to offer that bond anymore. But against someone like Chip, who has had a bit of stopping power at the moment, uh, those two versus the bank, Steve, are way in front, way in front of your NatWest, your First Directs, your whatever have you, so real incentive to, uh, to to keep your money in wise and uh, and it's considerably cheaper than when it listed as well Steve I don't know whether you've seen uh, where it listed it listed at 965 GBX so £9.65 and as of today it's up to uh, £6.28 so 628 GBX but uh it's uh it's down about thirty five percent from it from its listing price, Steve, which is you know, it's it's not bad for a business uh, like this. If we're taking it a year today, Steve, you could have got it this time last year at three pounds fifty three, so you'd be up seventy eight percent in a year. So I don't know, Steve. I, I quite like the look of this one. I think it's very attractive. My main issue with it is that the two founders are uh they're they're a strange bunch. They they're they're going on sabbatical. I think the both of them are going on sabbatical and uh, just leaving the business to do its do its own thing and you think well this isn't a very mm. old business for you to already be going on, you know, going all Jack Barcy on us and going to living in the mountains. Um yeah, I don't know. It's a strange move.
1: That is a strange move. I had two questions on this business and I think I can answer both of them. You know, this is very much a theme of Steve W answers his own questions on this show. But Um, The two things that initially caused me to hesitate on this uh, were the following. Number one, why can't uh, banks do this themselves? I I think it's a clever move, uh, moving your money this side and then taking your money out the other side. And the money doesn't have to go across borders. But in effect, you have moved money across um, borders. You've effectively uh, made it disappear and reappear again without being in any of the uh, middle positions. The answer is that banks are just not that international, I think. And uh, at the risk of sounding all like I'm comparing this to something like Visa or MasterCard, once one outfit's built out the kind of rails to do this and the infrastructure to do this, there isn't much incentive for anyone else to do it, especially if they can, um, in the Monzo style, run it through. Uh, Why is this kind of existing infrastructure? Which seems to me like there's a, a reason for thinking that someone bigger won't just copy them because it would be a pointless waste of money maybe that's the idea there the other question i had was okay so if we're going to basically run our kind of uk account and our estonia account in my example and we're going to put money into the uk account and take money out of the estonia account what happens if everyone tries to do that our estonia account suddenly goes to or suddenly there's a big run on our estonia account and we've got loads of money sat on the uk side but that's no good because people are trying to take it out in estonia well, we have two options one is we're going to go uh, get into trouble here and say no more estonia withdrawals or Uh, We're going to have to move some of that money from the UK thing to the Estonia thing, sort of defeating the thing we were trying to work around. And I get you might do that in occasions, but I think the answer, if I've got this right, is that as Wise gets bigger, there's going to be more and more money flowing in from all directions on these things. And if you imagine for the moment Wise reaches its maximum possible scale and there is constantly infinite money going into and out of every country's pot, as it were... um, then I think that'll be mainly fine, right? There'll be people from Estonia wanting to send places. I can see there might be a bit of a pinch if you suddenly had everyone wanting to withdraw in the same country at the same time. But I suppose that's only akin to a run on the banks. I think that I don't know how, how well they could handle that without immediately running into difficulties, and that'd be something I'd want to look into. But the bigger they get, the less chance of that happening is the idea I have in my head here, because more people means more transfers in all directions. Um, that's I think that was my kind of questions about this and I think those are the answers but I'm not sure as I try to work through these
0: you, your earlier point about um, the, the banks why can't the banks just do this uh, I do have a point on that because I did read a memo from uh, Santander who said that if they were to copy this uh, they would end up losing essentially 84% margin from their uh, money transfer business uh, just, just to try and match the same charges as well so that's why the banks aren't doing it steve is because they're charging you an awful lot to do it at the moment and while there's still people using the service and you haven't lost them all to wise um you are uh, you you may as well keep it running
1: yeah i'm always interested in what banks um make on their kind of uh, exchange things at the moment because i think i've known for ages and ages and ages now uh in the the foreign exchange industry that you don't do that at the bank unless you can possibly if you can possibly help it right uh that's been the case for for a while the, there was always the post office was cheaper back when um and since uh, and then they had those things where you can kind of preload uh cards to take abroad with you so if you uh, want to go and spend you can stick nearly everything on card at that point travelers checks Travelers' checks. I had a brief um, dalliance with. They were they were not my favourite things, if I'm honest with you. But I can see why they were kind of useful in their own sort of way. They can be replaced almost immediately and stopped fairly well. So they were mainly a security thing. But I don't think I've thought that changing money in the bank was was a good idea for a long time now so i'm sort of surprised that they still have a, a good a good business going on there maybe there's a kind of spending abroad thing and people can't be bothered to set up a particular thing just for that but it's not been terribly difficult to get a decent rate on foreign currency as far as i can tell for years
0: no and now i guess now it's exceptionally easier so uh interested to see where they go from here though steve i think um they're uh, a pretty exciting company predicting pretty decent growth we don't have a lot of that in the uk of course this is a global company making global revenues um i would be intrigued to see again not without the risks i think there's a risk here of um of regulation being applied quite broadly by the countries that they operate in um but i don't see anything wrong with the service at the, uh, the service at the moment steve so it's it's on my watch list of things to just keep an eye on
1: Yeah, it's kind of low on my watch list at the moment, but it is on my list of things I like to uh, have an eye on and a look at. And their big run just lately uh, has has very much drawn attention to. And this is mentioned, by the way, the business breakdown show that we mentioned is from actually quite a while ago now, might be a few months ago, uh, I think. That absolutely does mention their ability to earn interest on deposits and the idea that rising interest rates might be a tailwind for them in that way. Um, and it absolutely predates the big jump they had as a result of saying to the market, um, ah, guess what, higher interest rates means we earn a load on these deposits that we have uh, kicking around. So so I think that's probably, uh, in fairness to the, the podcast, they were well ahead of that. And I see that as a slightly missed opportunity on my part that I wasn't fast enough to, to figure out. But should we stick with consumer finance for a bit, Steve? let's go for it cool goldman sachs then um which has recently hiked its marcus account to around four percent if you have a a bonus built onto it like i do and is catching my attention as a result they've been uh they're currently in the business of unwinding or it looks like unwinding their tie up with apple for the apple um credit card this has basically been as far as i can tell absolutely horrid for uh, uh, goldman and a horrible misstep and One of the things that Goldman's consumer banking thing hasn't been good for them at all. They've offered below um, average loans, uh, sorry, worse than average loans at worse than average rates, basically. And that's not a good combination for them. But one of the things that they were involved in is a tie up with the Apple credit card. And on the face of this, this ought to have been quite good for both sides. Goldman Sachs wanted to get stuck into... It's uh, to the consumer sector because being regulated like a bank, they thought, well, we might as well go and do some things that banks do to make money, like take in deposits and lend them out and make some money on that rather than our usual trading, investment banking, so on, so forth uh, activities. And that makes a lot of sense. Apple wanted to try and expand their iPhone offering by attaching a credit card to it and building out their Apple Pay stuff Uh, and a nice seamless integration there backed up by Goldman, should have been a winner for both sides, but it hasn't been. It's been a massive winner for Apple and a massive loser for um, Goldman, basically, because what Apple has wanted and managed to get is very low rates, um, very low uh, rewards for Goldman and low fees, uh, all of which is Goldman's problem, basically. Uh, And what they want is to get this into as many iPhones as possible or as many iPhone users as possible and get as many of them approved as possible. And that only ends one way, as far as we can uh, have ever seen through history, trying to maximise just like carpet bombing credit cards onto people. It ends with charge-offs, which is basically uh, unpaid bills. The charge-off rate on an Apple card is about double uh, what you get from Bank of America or JP Morgan. So everyone makes mistakes, right? Everyone lends money to people who can't pay it back in this sector. But Goldman and so on do it twice as often, and they have lower fees and lower uh, interest rates to compensate for it. So this is part of the story it has been losing money for Goldman and their consumer banking sector has been horrid, but there is talk um, that American Express might be in the process of buying this uh, off of Goldman, and I was trying to kind of figure out why, because this has basically been a story of Apple bullying Goldman into doing something they didn't really want to do, but... It was a bit of a reach and it was a space they wanted to be in, so they kind of put themselves in there. Um which JP Morgan, Barclays and City, who all have uh large ish, okay, in City's case shrinking but still reasonably large uh consumer banking stuff, all said no thank you, we don't want this deal, this doesn't look very good. Goldman said, Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to work out what american express are getting from this i mean there's been a big drive from amex to move towards younger uh, consumers millennials they think that's a place where they could do with trying to help their brand reach because they don't have the same kind of clout as they do amongst the people who associate them for, with being the card for the wealthy the affluent the high spending uh, and so on and by all accounts they've been doing a pretty good job of it but maybe this is connected to that but I was reading on the 212 forum where I show up occasionally when you direct my attention towards something, Steve, um, that some people are expecting a pop from the American Express uh, share price here. I, if I was an American Express shareholder, which I'm not, but I own Berkshire, which does uh, own American Express, I'm not sure I'd be massively keen on this.
0: This is just another example of Goldman uh, trying to unwind this consumer business, which they've they've jumped two-footed into and then decided less than a year later that they really, really don't want to be involved in. Um, So just to run down the list of things that they're looking to offload at the moment, there's the Apple partnership, there's the General Motors card partnership Mm -hmm. that they bought for $2.5 in 2020. They're looking to ship that off to, uh, I think that's off to Amex as well, I think they're trying to ship that off to. And there's also Green Sky, which they bought in I think it was twenty twenty. Uh that's uh basically that's like a lending club, um a financial lending fintech kind of platform. Uh, it does auto loans and home improvement loans and things like that. Um and they don't want that either, Steve. They're, they're looking to ship that off as well. So uh gosh, I think I'll only leave the Marcus account, Steve, which is full circle back to the beginning. I would I don't know I think because I, I quite like David Solomon the, the Goldman CEO I think he's the first relatable CEO Goldman's had in a while They've t- they tend to be sort of like well they're known as the vampire squid for a reason aren't they and with head vampire at the top usually but Solomon seems quite relatable but in terms of what he's he's done he's he's basically just thrown cash at something that that hasn't stuck and then just kind of retreated really, really quickly. So I don't know. Has he been a great CEO for Goldman? I'm, I'm not entirely sure. The share price has done okay under him. Um, I just I just don't know if it's maybe time for a change at the top.
1: Yeah, arguably the share price has done very well with um, a massive tailwind behind it, which was some very low interest rates and the SPAC boom and a bunch of other stuff like that helping them make quite a lot of money, of course. I mean, how this thing's not trading at a P of 20 is something that is just constantly mysterious to me because you know other companies do that and and when things went really really well and like couldn't possibly have gone any better uh it never traded at a p of 20 then which is was surely insane but um i i think it's a tough one for uh david solomon right so coming out of the financial crisis uh and i know he's not quite back that far but coming out of the financial crisis goldman found itself being regulated like a, a bank and if you're going to be regulated like a bank, it makes a lot of sense, as far as I can tell, for you to try and do the, the things that banks do to make money and think if we're going to end up being regulated like this, well, let's take in deposits then because we should take in deposits and then let's go and make loans and let's do credit cards because if you look at other places like Barclay, like JP Morgan, like City, like Bank of America, like NatWest, like Lloyd's, they, they make pretty good money like this and why would you not want that kind of revenue stream there? And they have a... A current account that at the moment, it's a bit hard to kind of pick a, a constant winner on current accounts and say this is the one and it has a moat and that there's anything there without interest rate. I mean, you know, we're, we're probably, what are we, about four weeks from another interest rate rise, in which case I'll see what everyone's offering again. And uh I'll continue to kind of swing things around and, and see where we are. But Marcus is on any on, I was going to say on anyone's, it's on my list of current accounts and savings accounts that I'm keeping an eye on so it's a good product um they offer loans at what appear to be sort of fairly competitive rates that was how they got started in in consumer finance i see like i see that all the stuff has made a lot of sense it just seems to be maybe harder than people expected uh to try and get into this kind of consumer banking space turns out even for a company like goldman
0: yeah i think that might be the case so i mean dj Sol, as he's uh, he also likes to be known
1: oh um, yeah but... has,
0: yes has has struggled to get into um to be fair they they have gone in two footed they really have mm. gone in two footed they've bought all of the things they needed to try and get this off the ground i think it's just that people don't gravitate to goldman sachs for a cons- uh, for a, for for an account they're just not known as um, you know a high street bank that you would just pop your head into to uh, you know to open up a current account and i think that's a, that's a problem that they've just not been able to get get over even even with them um, you know, releasing a the product and calling it Marcus, which I don't know if it's the best name in the world ever for a bank, but um I think, said, I think it's, bank, does uh, it no,
1: and I think it's gonna be a case that a lot of people are gonna to struggle to get it um I think not many people are gonna know why it's called uh marcus and and that that kind of is is I think the sort of biggish issue with them it's it is a weird name it makes sense if you know why it's called marcus and that's
0: fine but there's nothing particularly catchy about
1: uh marcus as a as a name for a bank i think
0: no there's nothing catchy about it too too clever is probably what you would uh, you would put it they needed accenture in to give them a better name steve
1: accenture who's accenture steve
0: so accenture is one that i've been looking at recently uh it's a pretty interesting company it's an irish american uh, well it's an american company domiciled in ireland for tax purposes let's not mm-hmm. lie to each other yeah um which which you would expect from a company that is essentially a, a global consultancy firm uh to know where the best place to go for taxes and uh accenture are certainly uh certainly doing that steve so they're uh they're an interesting outfit um they reading off their website, so Accenture is a global company that helps organizations succeed by providing strategy and consulting, technology, operations, and industrial services. They believe that technology and human uh, ingenuity can be used to make a positive impact on the world. So, I found some examples Steve of what Accenture does, because I think that's a load of gobbledygook. So they basically helped uh, Disney Studios build a scalable platform to deliver interactive uh, movie posters. They've partnered with the Make-A-Wish Foundation to help its chapters grant wishes more quickly. It actually built Japan's first digital bank and the first full cloud banking system as well. So there's a few things that they did. They reported, it was was about three weeks ago they reported Steve, I think, but we just didn't, haven't got round to it yet. Um, and they're doing all right, Steve. They, they beat expectations on revenue, um, bringing in $16.57 billion in revenue. So it is a big company. That was up about 3% year on year. New bookings was at $17.2 uh, billion. Uh, which is uh, up to two percent year on year. Operating income, Steve, was down nine percent year on year to two point three six billion. EPS, though, was three point one dollar nineteen, up fourteen percent year on year. Op margin fell from sixteen to fourteen. Uh, and you know, it's a pretty interesting looking business, Steve. So I stumbled across this uh, just as I was about to, uh, as about to go live today. Accenture to invest $3 billion in AI to accelerate clients' uh-huh. reinvention.
1: Now we begin to arrive.
0: How many people are they planning on hiring Steve uh, to double their AI talent? Do you want to have a guess? They want to double it, so how many? <laughs> they want to double their AI. Uh, another 10, maybe?
1: They're going to hire 40,000
0: people. Wow.
1: They Okay, they are big on the AI stuff, huh?
0: So... Steve, Accenture, you said it was off. You said that it's one that you've stumbled across before but probably do not understand fully. Is there anything in these results that attracts you?
1: I think I'm impressed that these are a company that when I stumbled across them before, their stock has been very up and down. And they did at one point go through from above. Uh, a price buying number that i had but i didn't at the time have cash available and decided against selling anything to buy it i'm not sure whether that has turned out to be a mistake over time or not i think it probably has because these are good businesses and they tend to do pretty well but um i think what my take from this is that these things do grow pretty well uh these kind of organizations and you would want your kind of Business operations efficiency, uh, and so on. Uh, consultancy firm to to be based in someone le- somewhere like Bermuda or Ireland or Singapore, right? I mean, you're not going to have someone saying, "I know how to save you money on tax," while they're busy paying away sort of sixty percent of it themselves. So, um, I uh, Julie Sweet is their CEO, right? Uh, still, I think um she's very good. I saw a couple of interviews with her while I was um. Doing some digging, oh, a few years ago now, sort of during the during the pandemic, stock looked very expensive then, but I think it looks more expensive at this point. Um, it's impressive. Uh, okay, good. They have some AI stuff as well. Big tick. Uh, that presumably makes them viable for everybody.
0: Yeah, I guess so. That's that's the that's the reason to fire them, isn't it? The problem being, Steve, is that they actually um, they've hired about two hundred and thirty thousand people in just the last three years, and uh, then had to cut a load of them because they obviously saw this uh, unforeseen slowdown, which is not something you want to see from a, a company you're getting into uh, consult on. Uh, you know, consult on the business. And uh, could you help me predict the future uh, when they start when they start making job cuts? It's uh, it's uh, <laughs> it just makes me laugh i guess i don't know why i just think uh, you, should, you should you're should you the consultancy who do they get in to consult on you know who they should be firing it's a good uh, question of who consults with the consultants isn't it yeah yeah i mean I, I was impressed with julie sweet as well i think she's uh she's a pretty good ceo i think that again like everybody else she got a little bit excited about uh, during the pandemic uh, and obviously changing business and uh way 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 over hired in that regard um but Accenture is a pretty interesting business to me, Steve. It's P-E ratio of about 27 at the moment, which I still mm. think is a tad high for a company that's not particularly growing very fast. It is a 16 bagger since it went, uh, went public on the market, but uh, it's underperforming the market year to date at the moment, up 13% versus 16 as well. And that, I think, primarily is down to that very, very slow revenue growth, which they're evidently looking to kickstart by hiring 40,000 people in AI, Steve. Now, this could be... A very good move or it could be an absolutely awful move and I lean towards this being a bad move which makes me think uh, whoever comes in to turn around accenture after this move uh, we might have a bargain on our hands in the future
1: yeah that might be interesting it's always um, one thing to think about with these kind of companies you mentioned they have slow revenue growth and that's On the one hand, that's okay. There are other ways you can grow. You can buy back your stock, which they are doing, which will boost your earnings per share. You can expand your margins. But it's hard for a company like this to expand its margins very much. And that's both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing in that it makes them largely inflation resistant. They don't have any. They're not particularly exposed to the price of commodities, say, or something. Price of soybeans goes up. What the hell do they care? They don't make anything out of soybeans they are mostly driven by kind of wage inflation is their their main input cost but it makes it harder for them to then find any kind of margin improvement uh, like that and that means that growth mainly has to come from that top line flowing all the way down this is a kind of company that has uh good kind of operating metrics good returns on equity because they don't have to carry around a huge amount of heavy assets that sort of thing and these are all really nice things uh to know about it but um it looks to me a little bit touch on the to touch on the expensive side. I thought this before. I mean, it was at a thirty-two, maybe P a couple of years ago. Which, in fairness, look times were different back then. Interest rates were much much lower than they are now. Uh, but I thought thirty-two was a little bit much then. I wonder whether I still think twenty-seven is a little bit much now. Um, but they're going to keep ticking forward and and pushing forward. I guess I want to know a lot more about their kind of business in detail, but. But they, I think their results here look pretty good, as far as I can tell.
0: Yeah, pretty good in the face of a business sword. Steve. just having a quick look on ROIC.ai while I was uh, oh. while you was talking there. over the last seven years, there uh, or six years, sorry, their return in invested uh, return on invested capital is down about fourteen percent, which is quite oh. a quite a big fall, Steve. But then I'll just tell you that in 2016 it was 38 <laughs> percent. And it's been in the 40s, 32, 30, well, 33, 34. It's actually down to 23.8%, which again is not to be sniffed at in terms of return on invested capital.
1: No, that is very, very good in terms of return on invested capital. So this isn't a thing that has kind of high capital requirements or high uh, investment needs or big machinery to try and service. It means you pay a fairly heavy price to book, though, for their, their asset-like business. It's up around seven and a half, eight. 8 uh, mm eight times which is a lot but the idea is you're going to use those assets pretty efficiently and i think they are balance sheet look pretty strong when i looked a, a little while ago too
0: so. yeah the only other thing i would just tack on to the end of that as well as that with this massive hiring um, um, that we're about to experience at Accenture uh, analysts are actually expecting uh, earnings to be quite a bit worse as well so that 23 mm-hmm. PE becomes 25 on a forward basis and I would estimate if they get the 40,000 done this year which seems unlikely uh, but if they if they I can't, I can't believe there's 40,000 people in the world doing it but there you go um, 25 forward PE that soon becomes 26 27 maybe 28 Stephen this just starts to look uh, a little bit uh, well you even more unattractive to me.
1: It's interesting. Uh, with consulting firms, uh the the main the big ones that I kind of think of stuff like Bain and uh McKinsey and the like. I'm not sure these are these tend to be publicly traded uh companies. So so finding what it's difficult a little bit to find things to compare them to and I know that that's um you shouldn't really try and just compare these things because they're not quite the, the same, but something like Booz Allen Hamilton would be the other um business services bunch that i've uh, heard of i think they uh, they look like really good businesses they're the kinds of things that go on my list for in you know an entire massive market crash i'll have a go at them i'm not sure what kind of brings their sector down without bringing any other sector down but but if anyone's looking for a quality business to keep an eye on here and and buy in a, a big old uh whacking recession which is not impossible, uh, even if it looks apparently increasingly unlikely. JP Morgan, by the way, forecasting no recession for the UK on their um guide to the market stuff, so yeah, worth keeping in mind there, I guess. But yeah, uh I, I have this down as a high quality business with a big price tag.
0: Exactly the same, yeah. Cool. Um, Well, in that
1: case, let's leave things uh, there for this week. It's been nice chatting with everybody. Thanks all for listening. We will see you next time, maybe with Paul. No doubt he'll tell us he'll be here. We'll see if he actually is. But for now, bye from me and Steve.